I was thinking and talking to my wife about this. We saw this YouTube video that just had me in stitches. But it's one of those that you laugh at nobody else does. We were watching one of those. And it showed this guy that was really excited about looking at someone else's pictures of their pets. Right? So this person walks up. Hey, I've got some pictures of my puppy on the phone. Would you like to see them? And this guy gets incredibly excited about the pictures of the puppy on the phone. That's just not realistic. That never happens. Listen, if you're that person, we love you. We don't want to see your pets, you know, especially on your phone. I know that sounds weird. I'm not a pet hater. But you know how when someone else gets real excited about something and you're totally not into it, right? Any of y'all know that person? Some of you are that person, and that's why you're not laughing. Um, what about the movie? Have you ever, have you ever like, remembered a movie from the 80s or the 90s, and you're like, man, that, that movie was awesome. Nothing is better than Red Dawn. You know, for me, it was Red Dawn. And then I sit down with all my friends, and they're like, yeah, I've never seen Red Dawn. And you forgot how old and dated it is. You forgot, a, or Karate Kid, or whatever movie it is. And you're so excited about it, and then you start watching it. Not only are they not jazzed about it, you're not really jazzed about it anymore either. You know? It's interesting, I was talking to my wife about how one man's exciting moments is another man's yawn, you know? Pictures of your vacation, don't do it. Pictures of your pets, don't do it, you know? Because no one else is going to be as excited about your vacation or your pets as you are. It's just a fact. We love you, but, you know, how many pictures of that can you see? I think this phenomenon is the main reason we struggle with the Easter story. Okay, Because we read about a good story, about a good man doing good things, dying, and doing a good thing and raising again, right? And we can't find ourselves in the story. We can't seem to place ourselves in that story. Therefore, it's very irrelevant to us. Growing up, going to church year after year after year as, as an unsaved person. I went because my parents went. Hearing the Easter story year after year. You know what Easter was to me? It was a day on the calendar. It was one more day out of school where I had to meet with family members I wasn't that excited to meet with. Wearing clothes I wasn't that excited to wear. Eating ham, chocolate bunnies. That's what Easter was, right? It was irrelevant to my day to day. My goal today is to place you firmly inside of the resurrection story. My goal today is to place you firmly right next to the empty tomb because believe it or not, it's probably one of the most relevant stories in the Bible for us today. But it's hard. I mean, what do you see? It's hard to even find yourself in that story. You see Jesus, you see him gone, you see an empty tomb. I get it, the stones roll back, you see a couple passed out guards, a couple angels. And besides that, you're trying to figure out what it means for you, right? The thing is... As a Christian, Easter is not a day anymore. Easter is a reality. It's who you are. I'm not a big Pope the John Paul fan or anything like that, but he did have this stroke of brilliance in God's revelation. I guess whenever he has this quote, I love it. I'm going to tattoo it on my chest someday whenever I'm not chicken or doing stuff like that. And this is what it says. We are the Easter people, and hallelujah is our song. I love that. I love how it establishes that Easter is who we are and it's not a day. Now, we believe as a church that every passage in the Bible points to the cross. 
As Charles Spurgeon said, every passage has a gospel road to it, just as every road leads to Rome. We believe that as a church. I believe that every story, every chapter, every genre of literature, it runs course straight to the gospel. If that's true, we should be able to find ourselves in most of these stories. The reason that we can't is because we don't chase these passages to the cross, right? So we end up reading the Bible and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, what I want to do today is show you that there are actually multiple empty tombs in the Bible. There's three, I'm going to talk about two. Each one points to the ultimate empty tomb. Where where Jesus did not just cheat death. He didn't just cheat death. He pounded it. He destroyed it. He defeated it totally. Utterly. I want to look at the empty fish in Jonah. And I want to look at the empty earth in Lazarus. These are two signposts we have that God and His benevolence, His brilliance, put in the Word for us to read. Most people don't think of the empty tomb when they think of Jonah. And most people, when they see the story of Lazarus, they don't think of the resurrection, which happened just merely days later. Right? I want to look at those because in those stories, it's very easy to find who we are. It's very easy to see where you are in those stories, and those are Easter stories. Why? Because they nuance what God is ultimately going to do in doing the ultimate The ultimate empty tomb. So, and then when we're done with that, real quickly, I want to look at how we resist that. There is a resistance in us. We resist what the empty tomb says, what Easter says to us. We do. We have a problem with that. Now, typically, as Wes said, we have been going through this series called Controversy, where we've been going through our doctrinal beliefs as a church. They are controversial to a culture. A lot of it's controversial to us internally. Like I said last week, there are some things that we believe as a church that I would be false to say that there's not a piece of it every once in a while that that gets me. That I'm like, man, I know that's true, Lord, but I struggle with that still. I know that's true, but I'm, I'm still working my way through that. I mean, just loving it. I get it and I believe it, but loving it, sometimes it's harder than others. So we've been talking about the external controversy, the internal controversy, what it means for the city what it means for you, what it means for this church. We're going to touch on a little bit of that today, but it is Easter, so I am throwing a curveball, okay? It won't follow the same format exactly as it has the last few weeks. That meaning, typically, after the service, we answer your questions live. People have been texting it into this number, and then me and the elders will get up and answer whatever questions you have live right after the word. This week, feel free to text in the questions. We will not answer them live today, though, okay? This will be one week where we're not doing that. Not because I'm scared of the questions, but it's just because I want to go straight into worship after the word. All right? Does that make sense? Feel free to text them. I will, I will answer them. I'll text you back the answers to the best of my ability. I want to look at these tombs. And I want to start off with 800 years before Jesus found himself in the belly of the earth. Jonah found himself in the belly of a fish. 800 years. It says this in Matthew 12. Can you put that up, Matt? This is Jesus speaking bringing it very relevant. He says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So, God told Jonah, because Jonah was a prophet, right? God told Jonah to carry a message to Nineveh. He didn't want to do it. I'm going to cliff note this for you. All right, He was reluctant, to say the least. He was a reluctant carrier of God's message. He took another boat to another city, 
far away from Nineveh. It didn't go well. The big storm comes. He gets jettisoned from the boat into the water. Right at the same time that in God's beautiful sovereignty, a giant fish, no, I don't know how this happened, had its mouth open, caught Jonah. He sits in Jonah's belly for three days, ends up praying, right? Gets spit up on the shore, decides maybe I should go to Nineveh after all. Goes to Nineveh and preaches a message. Now, a lot of us don't believe that that's a very literal story. Jesus thought it was a literal story. Jonah was a historical character. There are other places in the Old Testament where we see him listed. But Christ, as we see here, had no problem thinking of him as a literal character, nor this as a literal occurrence. And I agree with Christ. Now, Nineveh, what's wrong with it? It's a big, five times bigger than Jerusalem. I mean, just population-wise. It took three days to walk through it, is what it says in the Bible. It was a nasty, disgusting city. Okay? Fill in the blank. Whatever city you think that to be today, that's what it was. I almost threw a couple out there, but I'm always afraid someone's actually from there. Um, But it was a nasty city. The things they did to their enemies of war, I mean, it's not even PG-13. I couldn't even say it. It was just a horrible, horrible place. Okay? I'll just say that to underscore it. It did not deserve God's message. God would be justified in wiping it out, just blowing it up and being done with it. It didn't deserve His message. It was a city of people who hated God, hated His laws. So what did Jonah end up preaching? Disaster. Impending doom. It's going to go bad for you guys. Impending doom and disaster because you stink so bad to God. That's his message, right? Surprisingly, what do they do? They repent. (laughs) Jonah didn't expect that. They all repented and they turned to God in obedience. So, why Easter, Luke? Why is that an Easter story? Why would Christ put that up there next to him dealing with the resurrection in the empty tomb? Because later, Jesus too would escape not just the belly of a fish, but the belly of the earth. And why? Because he's not a reluctant carrier of God's message to a people who don't deserve it, a city. He's a very willing and obedient carrier of a better message to mankind. Right? He is the better Jonah. Does that make sense? The grave for Christ is the bigger whale. Jesus is the bigger Jonah. Now, who are we? in that story. Well, we're Nineveh. We are Nineveh. That's how you find yourself in these stories. Else you read a story of Jonah and you're trying to figure out how that works for you. How is that relevant to me? I mean, it's a good story and all, and you can do a VeggieTales movie on it, but I don't know how it really works for me. You're in that story. You are squarely in the Easter story, except for you're Nineveh. Does that bother some of you? Because it bothers me. Reading it, we too... We are recipients of a message beyond our worth, beyond our deserving, beyond our value. Why? Because we're disgusting people. Because we're sinful. I mean, we're sinful. We sin when we don't even know it. We sin when we sleep. We sin when we're happy that we've not been sinning. We sin when we've not done something bad because we didn't do something right. I mean, we sin all the time. We can't even help it. We sin since we're little kids till the day we die. We are a mess. We are... Nineveh. Like Nineveh, we don't deserve the gospel, the better message carried to us. We don't deserve an empty tomb. We do get what we don't deserve, and we don't get what we do deserve. We are Nineveh. Like Nineveh, we're also reconciled enemies. We're not just bad people, we're enemies of God. This is bad news. I hope this is bugging you. It should bug you. It should get you, right? 
we have made ourselves enemies. And the beauty of this is, is God rescues us in our worst moment. Now last week we talked about God's passion for us on the cross. And how literally our worst moment is mankind's is actually our best moment as mankind. So here it is, Jesus, wrongly tried, betrayed, left, naked, scourged, beaten, about to be murdered, tortured, up there, people gambling for his clothes, his blood is coming out. I mean, it's just a total mess. A total mess. We're lifting refuse up to his face. And right in that minute, what is he doing? He's atoning for you. Individually, you. Us as mankind. He's preaching for us. He's praying for us. Our worst moment, our most hideous moment as mankind was our most elaborate, our finest moment as mankind. It says this in Romans 5, verse 8. Put that up there. It says, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, at our worst, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be justified by Him from the wrath of God. Now hear this. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? I love Jesus not being reluctant to carry the message. You see, Jonah was. Jonah's like, whatever, not doing that. I'm going somewhere far away from that. Christ was willing, he was obedient, he did it sacrificially, he did it to please his Father, and he did it because he loved you. We are actually more dangerous to Christ than Nineveh ever was to Jonah. Think about it. So, just as Jesus was a greater Jonah, we are a greater Nineveh. Okay? Now, 800 years after that, After that empty belly of the fish. 800 years. And just not too many days before Christ was actually put on a cross. Lazarus left the tomb alive. Right? Look at John 11. 14 through 16. If you still have your hand there in John. This is Jesus. He's talking to his disciples. Right? Now about this time that he's saying this. He's about 110 miles away from Lazarus. That's a good foot journey. Okay? He's far away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not even all that great of a place for him to be at the time. Right? He's doing a lot. To be close to Jerusalem means you're close enough for them to grab you and capture you, and then on and on. All the disciples knew that. Well, Christ knew it too. Right? Not a great place to be. He's 110 miles away preaching the gospel, seeing people radically come to know the Lord, but then he gets news. He says this, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. They understood that to go to Jerusalem would be a pretty bad deal. Now, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. If you've read the story, you know that. Now, This was the trip. Him going to see Lazarus was the trip that put him close enough to Jerusalem that he was captured. Every step he took towards Lazarus was a step he took towards his own grave. His trip to see Lazarus come out of the tomb was the same trip that was going to put him in the tomb. Do you see the gospel application in that right there? Right there, do you see the road to the cross? The fact that he was marching towards the tomb would mean that somebody else would be called out of the tomb. Now it starts to be easier to see where you're at in the story. He did this. Why? He did this for two reasons. Real quickly, I'm going to fly through them. He did this, first of all, to display God's glory 
in the fact that Lazarus was marching out all bandaged up with probably about a hundred pounds believe that, 100 pounds worth of linen cloth and perfumes, not perfumes to smell good, not like I just walked through Dillard's, I smell perfume perfume, but perfume like, I don't want this body to stink, it was meant to abate the smell of stench of decaying body, so he's got that all over him, I don't even know what that must have looked like, him just stomping out of the, the tomb with all that stuff on, right, but that's what happens, and that was supposed to be something pretty big to see. Pharisees were there seeing it. People came to know the Lord seeing that. You know they did. You know they did. It was a display of God's power. What does Jesus say right before it happens? John 11, verse 41. Skip down to 41. It says, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, I love this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He did this to display God's glory. The second reason is he did this because he loved Lazarus. He loved Lazarus. Go back up to verse 33 in that same chapter, John eleven thirty-three. It says this, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. So what does that mean? Well, she's bawling her eyes out because her brother just died. Now, what we do here in the States, this is how we handle death. We put on our nicest suits, we go to a nice building, whether it's a church or otherwise, and there's a casket there, everything is prim and proper, and I mean, you don't even talk above a whisper, do you? You don't, you don't fool around, your kids aren't fooling around, everyone is up, sitting up straight, looking forward, whispering, looking their best. That is not how they handle death in the Mediterranean. I mean, you see it on the news a lot of times. Flopping around, wailing, pulling at their clothes, throwing ash up in the air. That's what it was. A lot of times they'd actually hire professional mourners to come and join the noise and join the fray. I know that sounds strange, but believe me, if they looked at how we did it, they'd think it was equally strange. Okay, That's how they did death. Jesus is seeing all this. All the funeral crud hanging everywhere. You know, the refreshment table. He's seeing a bona fide funeral and he's... He's weeping. He's weeping because he loves Jesus. And he's mad at the same time at what sin has done and what death has done. This is what it says. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and his spirit was greatly troubled. Now listen, deeply moved, that's a very poor rendering. Probably every single Bible in here says that. A better Greek rendering for that is indignant. D.A. Carson agrees. Dignant, indignant, mad, ticked, infuriated, put off. Why is he mad? Because he's seeing what sin and death is doing to even his closest loved ones, his friends. He's mad. He's boiling inside. He's upset. He loves Lazarus. And then he says this, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then it says, verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See, see how he loved him. Now, this miracle, what I'm trying to paint as far as the picture for you, this miracle was not given to us by a blank, emotionless God. He was engaged. His gut was connected. He was ticked. He was in love. He was infuriated. Not a blank stare. Jesus would cry, Come out. This is incredible. He'd cry, call, just come out to a man who eventually was going to be put right back in the same grave. 
You see, this wasn't a resurrection. Resurrection means you never go back in the grave. This is a, what some call a resuscitation, a revivification, whatever you want to call it. He had new life again, but this wasn't resurrection. He's probably the only man in human history who has been buried twice in the same tomb, right? He comes out. There will be a day again when he says, come out to you. And when you go back, you will never go back in that grave if you're a Christian. If you call Christ king, if you center your life around him, he will yell, come out, and you will never go back. Death has lost its sting on you. So, Lazarus comes out. They're all freaking out, I'm sure. But why Easter? Why is this an Easter story? What does this have to do with Easter, Luke? It's days and days before Easter ever really happened. Lazarus' grave, it points to a deeper grave. That tomb points to a deeper tomb. Later, Jesus would go in a tomb, and he would come out. Of course, he would never go back, because he'd beat death. He pounded it. Like I said, he didn't just cheat it. He didn't just escape it. He didn't find a loophole. He defeated it, and he put death in its own grave. Now, he would do this out of love for you and me. The same love he had for Lazarus. He has for you individually. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Now, who are we in this story? So as we look at this story, once again, remember, we're trying to place ourselves in the Easter story. It needs to be relevant to you. It is a relevant story. You were Lazarus. You're Lazarus. And now get this. You're Nineveh because you're disgusting, right? As am I. You're you're Nineveh because you're disgusting enemies who are undeserving of a message, right? Yet you're Lazarus as well deeply loved, wept for, and a part of God's displayed power. Do you see how that makes you a part, a viable part, of the Easter story? That's how it works. It's passion for us. It's not emotionless. I can't say that enough. Now, it's difficult. I talked with a pastor this week. Um, He's a good friend of mine. We support their church plant. And he's got a woman that is sitting in his congregation that's not doing so well. She has cancer. And she's been battling through it. She's been fighting through it. And he's like, Luke, it's difficult for me to talk about how death has lost its sting. It's difficult for me to convey this Easter story. And I'm agreeing with him. And we're talking on the phone and we're crying and we're praying together. You see, Easter service, this is the most difficult service of the whole year. Understand? Because people come from all over. We preach Easter every week though. We believe as a church in a a living, dying, and living again God. Every week, every day is Easter. We are the Easter people, like we say. But sometimes people come in and they've got damage. They're going to die. They're dying. They've got cancer, whatever. And sometimes it just doesn't feel like death has been put down. Sometimes it doesn't feel like death has been mastered. Sometimes it feels like death still retains its dominion over us. I like how this guy says it, Leland Riken. He says, In Christ, death is nothing more than a nap from which the righteous will awaken to endless day. That's how I think about it. When I got radically saved, God changed the way even I thought about death. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He talks on this same thing. I love this as well. I've had family members that have died. And I've watched them preach this to me right out of the Word of God. It says this, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, 
and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And here he's going to quote from the Old Testament, right? Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What is Paul doing? He's mocking death. Why? Because Christ had already beat it. I love it. I love it that when Christ came busting out of the tomb, it was a spit in the face for death, who thought it had always had... Death thinks it's got mastery out of all of us. It's the most relevant part of the human race. No matter where you're at on the planet, that's the one thing that ties us all together. And we serve a God who's actually mastered death itself, who's put it down. Jesus' grave was much bigger than Lazarus' grave. And His resurrection is much, much, much bigger than Lazarus' resurrection. So all of this, the two stories, the empty fish, the empty earth, it all points to the ultimate tomb where Jesus was swallowed, but only momentarily. Only momentarily. And then he up swallowing up death and victory, burying victory, because the grave could not hold Jesus Christ, because he is who he says he is. It couldn't hold Christ. Even death itself has to bow at his feet. That's the Easter message for us. So, in these stories, once again, you are Nineveh, undeserving enemies, and you are Lazarus, passionately loved, intensely loved. That is where we're at. Because typically when we think of Easter, we don't see ourselves anywhere. I hope you see yourself. I hope you see yourself firmly planted right there next to the empty tomb. That's where you belong. Now, at almost every point in the resurrection story... On purpose, I did not take all the time to read through all the different accounts. You can do that on your own, okay? You have a Bible. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have free ones by the door. Just grab one on the way out. Take your time to read through it. Watch. Anytime the resurrection of Christ comes, it's met with unbelief. Even by people who love Jesus, right? Mary didn't believe, but just for a minute, right? Just for a tiny bit of time. Mary was like, what? No. The gardener took him. Where is he? Thomas, a little bit longer. He needed proof. I won't believe until I see the hands on the side. Today, there are still people who still do not believe. The resurrection story is always met with unbelief. For us, I want to focus on two major points of unbelief. That's it. This is internal controversy. All right. I did deal with in my notes, and they're for free if you want them. They're easy to get. I deal with all the things that the skeptics and the atheists say. I don't believe he really died. I believe he just passed out. He was in a coma. He was never there. They stole his body. All the ridiculous things that we say today as a culture to escape the fact that Jesus Christ rose. I deal with all of that in the notes. But the internal ones are the ones I want to deal with with you today right now. One of them is... We don't believe that we are Nineveh. We don't believe that we are as disgusting as we are. That's one. Two is we don't believe that we're Lazarus. We don't believe that we're as lovable as we are. Somewhere you're going to find yourself either in one, the other, or both. That's how thick our unbelief is. So I'm going to deal with one, the uncomfortable one first, and that's the fact that you are disgusting. And I am too. And we hate that. We hate it. This is what it says in Romans. This is what Paul says in Romans 3. That's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to paraphrase. He says, no no one's righteous. Not any of you. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one even looks for God. Everyone's turned away. Together, everyone has become worthless. I mean, you see where this is going. It's going bad real fast, right? 
Their throat is an open grave. And then he talks about how there's poison underneath the tongue. And he just goes on and on and on. And he's just, it's almost like overkill. If you read it, it just feels like he's overcompensating to prove a point. He is. Why is he overcompensating? Because we just don't believe it. <laughs> we don't believe it. We believe, I mean, well, I mean, we believe that we're okay. But the fact is, is we're a pretty big mess. We don't deserve gifts, right? What we really deserve is what we earn. We deserve what we earn. But the problem with that is, is the price tag on rebellion is death. That's the paycheck we get for rebellion. It's death. The wages of sin is death. That's why we see that in the Bible. That's what we really get. Gifts are above and beyond and we don't deserve them. The fact is, is we don't deserve an empty tomb. As people, as Ninevites, we don't deserve Easter. We don't deserve an empty tomb. If we got what we deserved, we'd be like every other major world religion with tombs everywhere filled with bones of their respective superstars. That's what we deserve, right? It was customary in Judaism. Um, it's customary that whenever a prophet died, they would collect the bones, put it in some mound of earth, uh, uh, I don't know what it would be, like a grave or something like that, and they would call it a shrine. Why? Because they believed that the bones of a prophet would impart religious and spiritual value to the shrine. Right? That's why you have shrines all over the world, don't you? There is none for Christianity. Have you noticed that? That's because there are no bones this is what Driscoll and Brashear say in the book Doctrine. It's a great book. Brashear says, Of the four major world religions, only Christianity claims that the tomb of its founder is empty. It's the only one. Judaism, it looks back to Abraham who died 4,000 years ago. right? And where do they maintain and care for that grave? Hebron. Still there. Bones inside. Thousands visit Buddha's tomb in India every year. There's bones in that tomb. Islam's founder, Muhammad died on June 8th, the year 632, and his tomb is in Medina, and it's visited by millions worldwide. There is no such shrine for Christianity, because there are no bones there to give it any value. The bones are gone, because the body's gone. There is a real and physical resurrection that really happened. But what we deserve is a tomb filled with bones. That would be justice. Now, we don't like to believe this, right? Like I said... Because when it comes to our performance, we feel like we do pretty well. We even carry a list around, right, of things that we don't do. This is what I don't do. I mean, we have a little list of things that we do do, and then we have a big list of things that we don't do. Because that's how we are as people. And, and, and what it is, that's the beginning of works, salvation. Where we try to perform to gain favor, we try to behave better to get blessing, did y'all ever have these classes? I might be dating myself. I'm sure they don't use like scantrons in every class now. I know I'm not that old, but do you remember in school, whenever you'd be like grade school or junior high or something, when they'd make you take like a, a pop quiz, usually pop quizzes, and then you have to pass them off to a neighbor? You know what I'm saying? And they would grade yours and you would grade theirs? You never, you never wanted to sit next to the person you didn't know very well, right? Or the person that was kind of like a straight A kid, you didn't want that either. You wanted your buddy there. You know? Because they were going to give you that look, and you were going to give them that same look, like, hey, you go easy on me. We know how this works, right? I'll go easy on you. Even worse were the ones where the teacher, for whatever reason, says, grade your own. Everyone take out a red pen. You're going to grade your own test. I'm thinking, are you kidding? 
Because I'm going to find the one, number three, I'm going to get wrong. But you know what I'm going to say in my head? I meant to put that. I mean, I hear the right answer now. That's what I really meant. I'm going to, I'm going to count it right. I'm going to turn that C into a, what would that be, a B? No, a D. I'm going to turn that C into a D. Why? Because I had, I had an intent. I had a motive. And I think that should count. And that's the way we are. We carry a list around us, right? And we're like, well, I, I know I sin, but I don't mean to do that. I, I mean, at least I don't do this. And we're all sinners, right? I mean, you see the reasoning. I'm like that kid in junior high. Because what do we like to do? We like to grade ourselves compared to everybody else. And we like to give ourselves a big curve. A big curve based on our intent and on our hearts. We don't like to be Nineveh. We don't think we really deserve to be Nineveh. We don't feel like Ninevites. We don't feel like we're that rotten, do we? We don't. That's for people that go to jail. That's for people on the news at night. Those are the Ninevites. The people in those far-off countries with the weird names we can't pronounce, they're Ninevites. They are undeserving enemies of God. I'm not. I mean, I know I am sometimes, but, you know, at least I try. And that's us grading our own test. That's us grading our own test. You are Nineveh. Believe it. So am I. Without Christ, we are disgusting. Now, the gospel in this is that in your disgustingness is when Christ loved you the most. That's ridiculous. I mean, that's just the ridiculous, scandalous gospel to me. Is it, at me at my, my worst possible moment, as horrid as I can get in mind and in deed, is when I was loved the deepest. When I was the most religious, the most hypocritical, the most foul-mouthed, the most everything, I mean the most depraved I could ever be, is when Christ loved me the most. That's the gospel. But we don't like that because we like to be in control. We want control over how God sees us. We want control. We want to earn it. And then once we've got it, we want to prove that we were worth it the whole time. See, Jesus, I'm pretty good. I'm not a Ninevite. I'm just going to use the rest of my life to show you. That's work salvation. Better be real careful of that. That'll take you straight to hell just as fast as any sin will. Christ was just as sharp with legalism and self-righteousness as He was with any sin. That is a sin, in fact. So it's very difficult for us. Gosh, Luke, this is Easter. I thought I was supposed to be happy. I was supposed to be happy. You're dropping the bomb. You're right. It is, it is happy. Be, because why? Because you're also Lazarus. You're also Lazarus. Deeply loved and cared for. Passionately pursued. You're Lazarus. But we resist this too. We don't like to be Lazarus. When it comes to our performance, we feel like we cover the spread. right? But when it comes to how we think God views us, we feel very unlovable, don't we? Isn't that amazing how that works? The juxtaposition of those two things. I perform well enough and I serve well enough to get favor. But when it comes to how I'm really seen, deep inside, I'm dirty. I'm unlovable. I wouldn't love me. You ever think that? We resist even being Lazarus. That's how deep sin goes. That's the effects of sin in your life. Listen, Jesus weeping for Lazarus wasn't because they are best buddies. It wasn't. He loved him. Don't think for one second he doesn't love you just as much. Don't think that for one second. His act of passion was just that. It was passionate. There's love. What we've done is we've domesticated Jesus Christ 
in the church, right? We've tamed him. What we've done is, is we've taken all the emotions out of him. He doesn't smile, doesn't frown, he's very blank, he just struts around keeping the same, you know, stoic attitude, no fire in his belly. Don't buy that version of Jesus. Don't buy it for one minute. He was very vivacious. He had a lot of emotions. Of course, they were kept inside because, not kept inside, but kept within check. He never sinned from his emotion. But there was a time where he was indignant, a time where he was passionate. He laughed, he cried, he wept, he cried out. Now, this is the deal. Some of you can actually get behind the fact that Jesus is passionate. So everything I just said, you agree with. You're like, Luke, I agree. Luke, I agree. Jesus is that person. I know it. It's easy for us to get behind that. It's actually a little bit more difficult for us to believe it for us individually. It's easier for us to see that Jesus is passionate for mankind. Mankind. Everybody. Jesus loves everybody. Or Jesus loves the church. Or Jesus loves this country. But did you know that he can actually pierce through the crowd and see you individually? Jesus loves you individually. You individually. He's passionate for you individually. He cries for you individually. By yourself. If you were in an empty room, Jesus wouldn't walk by and go, Well, I'd go in there and show my love, but there's only one dude in there. Only one person. I'm going to walk by to where mankind is at and love that. That's not how he works. It's not how he works. This Jesus, he knows you by name. And he cries for you just as deeply. He's indignant for you just as deeply as he ever was for Lazarus. Now, for you the difficulty will be coming out of the tomb, being a Christian, peeling back the linen strips just like Lazarus had to and seeing what Lazarus did. You know what Lazarus saw? Think about it. Just think about it. Put yourself there. It's not rocket science. Lazarus comes out. Jesus says, get all that junk off of him. He's not dead. So they start pulling the strips off. Eventually, the strip was going to come where he could see. Alright? Probably was blinded at first. All the light. I get that. Just like on TV. But eventually, he could see just like we could. What kind of Jesus do you think he saw? Do you think he saw blank, emotionless Jesus stripped away and domesticated from all passion? He saw Jesus that had been crying, who had been shouting, who had been indignant, but feels victorious, knowing the whole time it's pointing to an empty tomb that will glorify God and free parts of mankind. I mean, that's an amazing pit of emotion. He was just stirring with all kinds of emotion. That's who Lazarus saw. That's who you need to see. That's who you need to see. It's okay to think of Jesus like that. It's okay to think of Jesus without him being sanitized and distilled of all emotion, blank, where it's all drained from him. It's not Christ. So, real quickly, I'm going to fly through this and we're done. Today, some of you, some of you here are Ninevites. Alright? Some of you are Ninevites. You're sitting in your stuff. Sitting in your sin. Sitting in your refuse. Sitting in your rebellion. Sitting in... You, you know who you are. Some of you, that's who you are. And you have a hard time... Well, we already talked about what Easter means. It's just a day, right? Listen, when I was a Ninevite, I hated Easter. I hated it. It was irrelevant to me. I couldn't find myself in the story. And it was worse than church. It was church turbo. Because everything I didn't like in church got ramped up. Not only do I have to go with my parents now, now I had to go with clothes that didn't fit because they were bought two years ago and you never buy Easter clothes every year, right? And meet family members that you didn't want to be with 
and eat ham that didn't always taste that great. You know? That's what Easter was to me. Some of you, that's where you're at. I mean, that's just all you've ever known. That's all you've ever known. For you, unless you claim... Now, you have to hear me very clearly. Very clearly for the next 60 seconds. Listen very clearly. If that's you, and you have not called Jesus Christ King, and the empty tomb has held virtually no power or value for you, if that is you, and Christ would not be your Lord, and you would be distant from Him. And let me tell you, death has not lost its sting, it has retained it. Death still has its sting. There will be a time where He yells, Come out! And everyone, listen, this is what resurrection is. When He says, Come out in the end, it says this in Daniel 12 too, everybody's resurrected, not just Christians. Christians and non-Christians, unbelievers, they all come out of the ground. The sea gives up its dead. The earth gives up its dead. And judgment happens. Some of us are judged unto eternal life. And some of us go right back in the grave. And death has kept its sting. That's where you are. If you are a Ninevite today, as far as I could keep the classifications, that's where you're at. Now listen, Nineveh, it was gifted. It did not earn that grace. They did not earn Jonah's arrival. It was a gift. He came out of nowhere, and they got something they didn't deserve. So my call to you today, today, is to repent. Repent not just from sin, and not just from the sin that most inconveniences you, but repent from your self-righteousness. Repent from thinking that it's all about how you perform and as long as you behave well and at least as good as the, the normalized average of everyone else that goes to church, if you could do that well, then, then probably you'll cross your fingers and the man upstairs will actually have a little bit of grace for you. Let me tell you, you're sorely wrong and you'll be, you'll be in big trouble. That is not how it works. as works salvation. Right? You need to turn. You need to do it quickly. Christ is ready to call you straight up out of your tomb. That's where you need to be in this Easter story. Don't let this be one more Easter where it doesn't make any sense. Don't let this be one more Easter where you're just gritting it, tolerating it, and counting the minutes until it's over. And believe me, I know what that feels like. Don't let this be one more of those. And some of you are Lazarus. And for you, my call to repentance is just to quit stripping away the passion Christ has for you. Some of you, you've been serving God so... I'm, gonna, I'm using that word carefully. You've been serving God so hard for so long. You've been serving and serving and serving and serving and serving so hard that He becomes a boss, a principal. You don't have love relationships with your boss. Well, not legally. Or a principal, right? You don't. You just serve. You just are employed. You just perform. Some of you have never known a Christ of passion. Some of you have never even felt like Christ has cried or called out for you. You've never let Him that close. You've never taken the time. You feel vulnerable, even being in the quiet. Even just trying to see God, you feel weird about that. That He even knows you. That you're even lovable. But I've got so much junk, you're lovable. But I smell like death. Mary said, He smells like death. He's been in there for four days. Do you see how loved you are? Some of you in here are Lazarus. Don't let this be an Easter message that goes by, that goes by and you walk out of here for one more day thinking that you served and you're approved and you're saved and you're justified, but you are not loved. Don't do that. 
Don't do that. Now, just to, to finish up, the team can go ahead and come back up here if you guys are ready. We'll finish up this way. Christ, with the breath in His lungs, with the breath in His lungs, created a, re- a revolt, a revolution, by crying out, It is finished, and by leaving a tomb vacant. He started a revolution where death would no longer assault you, where death would no longer wash against your shores and taunt you. That is the Easter message. It's Him verifying, I have always been who I've said I was. I am Jesus Christ. I have mastered death, and you better believe it. Try to find, as we, listen, I mean, these guys, they're going to they're gonna take us through some worship. They're going to lead us to song. In this time, this is what I would challenge you to do. This is what I challenge you to do. I would challenge you to try to find where you're at in the story. You might be both Nineveh and Lazarus. You might be just one or the other. But don't let this be another week where you can't find where you're at or where this story doesn't make much of a difference. Okay? I want you to really pray out and allow God to show you who you are and allow God to do the work He needs to do. Let this Easter be a different Easter for you. This is a relevant story.